Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the world. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about what you see and hear and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point, to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. This week, we welcome back Myron and Jeremy of Mental Supermodels. This time, we hash out our beginner experiences with cryptocurrencies. We cover how our thinking has evolved from our first forays into the world of digital currencies to where we stand today. This episode touches on investment philosophies, hits and misses in crypto, and mental models we use when dipping our toe into this dynamic and oftentimes confusing world. And just a note, nothing in this episode should be construed as investment advice, financial advice, monetary advice, legal advice, or any other kind of advice. This episode is four guys talking about their experiences in the world of cryptocurrencies. And as always, we're building a community around Mentally Unscripted. So share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another crossover of Mental Supermodels and Mentally Unscripted, the place where you come to hear four people talk about mental models and applying them to our world to create better understanding, better communication, better decisioning, and thinking. I have with us today the amazing Jeremy, the mighty Myron, and the high-risk hillbilly Scott. This is Stefan. How are you guys all doing today? Hey, I'm great. Good. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the energy. There we go. All right, everyone. <laughs> you know, for for the all the listeners out there, we were um, we were going back and forth on crypto, one of our favorite topics, and we were we were trying to figure out what would be something else we could cover with y'all because it is something that's top of mind for for all of us, and. Um, you know, we realized we hadn't really done something where we talked about our experiences. All of us have been in the space for some period of time, and um, it, we thought, why don't we, why don't we just have a discussion on that? Because it's it's easy to look at the, the the mental models that were used to understand the market, maybe think about where it's going in terms of technology adoption. And I think those are great topics, and, and we thought we we may be able to do something more with that later. Jeremy and Myron both have some great ideas on that. Um, but what about just the, the experiences as sort of the, the layman investor uh, and or the the layman adopter who's starting to use these new technologies uh, in their own life? And so uh, we figured that's what we would do today. So this is going to be all about our experiences. So, um, you know, keeping it simple, maybe I'm just going to start with you, Jeremy. Uh, how did you get into what we call crypto today? Well, uh Without being too dramatic, it was the summer of 2017. <laughs> and, uh, no, it was the summer of 2017. But uh, at the time, a friend of mine was telling me about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, at the time, he was actually mining Bitcoin. And he was telling me about how all of these people were making tons of money with these ICOs uh, on Ethereum. Yeah. And... <laughs> At the time, I think Bitcoin was like $3,000 and ETH was a couple hundred bucks. And I spent like about four or five months after that just really thinking about it, not really digging into it or doing any thorough research, but really just kind of surface level thinking about it. Um, and then in the blink of an eye, I FOMO'd in and bought Bitcoin in December of 2017 <laughs> at like $16,000 and ETH at around $1,400. And uh, two months later, it crashed and I lost half of it and then didn't even look at crypto for like two more years. So, okay. So before you, you spent four or five months thinking about it, whether uh, studying it, I guess even prior to that, when your friend told you, hey, there's these things, Bitcoin, Ethereum, what was your exposure at all? You know, I imagine you knew about the headlines, but did you understand anything about this technology? No, not really. I mean, I, I had heard blockchain and I didn't really know what it meant. So no, my, like my real knowledge of it was very minimal. It was headline level knowledge Okay. at the time. At the time. And then I yeah. guess from a, from a, those four to five months in which you're thinking about this, did was there a light bulb eureka moment? Uh, was it just 
constantly refining that decision-making process. I guess I'm curious, like, what was there a mental model that kind of a, like, built up in your mind about why this was valuable? At that point in time, no. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was literal FOMO at that point in time because everybody else was talking about making money and they were going to the Bitcoin conference and they were partying on yachts and, yeah. and I just wanted to be a part of it. But when it crashed and I got out of it for okay. like two years, what, what happened after that was you know the March 2020 pandemic crash uh, I started just really looking for opportunities because everything was down, stocks, mm-hmm. whatever, crypto. Um, and I always had p- these positive feelings about blockchain, the technology. So even though I didn't really understand it, I felt like that there was something about it. So it was you know, like after that crash in March 2020, uh, and even though Bitcoin and Ethereum broke my heart in 2018... <laughs> Uh, I came from the uh, the financial services in the banking world yeah. is the industry that I was in. And I knew how inefficient the underlying infrastructure was and about all of the, the middleman fees. Mm-hmm. So so then I started digging deeper. And, and But what I started looking at at the time was Ripple and then Stellar Lumens because – those were the ones that were talking about addressing banking transactions, cross-border payments, and you know something that I kind of understood. Like I, I knew that the that the fees were high and that the transaction times were slow. Mm-hmm. So I thought blockchain blockchain sounds like something that can solve that. Ripple and Stellar were the, were the ones talking about banking. So that really pulled me back in to it. Got it. Okay. All right, so we're going to go the other end of the spectrum. You've you've been around this since 2017, Scott. I think you are the the baby of the group in terms of your adoption here. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about that. When what's your exposure to Bitcoin? When did you get into it? Uh, honestly, I first used it before 2017, but I used it oh, because I okay, wanted. So you're not the, all right. Right. I, right. I didn't look at it as an investment. I looked at it mm. as a way to buy things with some privacy. And I, so I don't remember the first time I bought Bitcoin. It might have been 2016. And I did it through Coinbase. And, you know, it was pretty straightforward. I bought some Bitcoin. I sent it to the vendor who I was buying something from. And I got my stuff in the mail. And it was really cool. Um, <laughs> so, it, so through 2017, I was using Bitcoin to buy some stuff. But then, like Jeremy, you know, it, I was buying it at like 16,000, 17,000. And all of a sudden it crashed. I'm like, well, this sucks. Um, because now I can't buy as much stuff that I could before. So I stopped using it for a while and I just let my, what Bitcoin I, what little Bitcoin I had left, I just let sit there. So it's really only in the last year that I started looking at it as more of an investment thing. And even that for me and the investing part is good, but I look at it more as a personal sovereignty um, technology. And Mm -hmm. that's why I'm, I'm starting to look into it now. So um, the investment thing, yeah, I mean, that's great. But I want I want something that's going to help me live a life <laughs> as, as free from prying eyes as possible, I guess. You mean you, mean you, you want the, the privacy that the WF says we, we never need? I, I don't know why. I don't know why. Uh, All right, well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Myron, how about, how about yourself? When did you uh, get into the space? Um. You know, first of all, bef- before I answer the question, which I will, but it, it's funny because I almost cringe at at the question. And the reason is that I, I forget sometimes that this is new to a lot of people and that there are folks who really have maybe very little exposure or no exposure to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And when I listen to a podcast and... uh they ask people about, well, how did you get into Bitcoin or how did you get into cryptocurrency? I feel like, well, imagine if you were watching an interview on Real Vision or Bloomberg or CNBC and they ask you, yeah, so Jeremy, tell me, when did you first get into dollars? <laughs> like, well, my dad gave me an allowance and I bought some ice cream. And, you know, it's like, it, I really look forward to the point in time when the question, so how did you get into Bitcoin, 
is equally nonsense to Mm -hmm. how did you get into dollars? But it's a good reminder that we're not there yet. And for some people listening that may be hearing about our experiences uh, is a helpful thing. So having with that out of the way here, um, (laughs) I actually um, became aware of Bitcoin like within a week or two after Satoshi published the Bitcoin white paper. Uh, And I even... Are are you Satoshi? (laughs) I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> nor deny. <laughs> but, uh, and I even kind of looked pretty early on into like, what would it take to set up a, a miner? But, you know, I, I had, a, I was running a business, had family, kids to take care of, dog to walk. And so I, I looked into it and it's like, ah, looks like a lot of work. Um, so I actually then didn't, didn't do anything with that. And the first Bitcoin I bought was probably, 2015, I want to say. Um, so I, I bought a, a modest amount of Bitcoin then and just did nothing with it, just held it in the wallet. And then 2017 came along. And uh, like a lot of other people, I, I, I really kind of broke my own principles and jumped into the ICO speculation craze, uh, which didn't work out so well for me. But, um, uh, you know, and when I say I broke my principles, I, I really, I, I'm not a day trader or, you know, a trader, I, I really, I really want to have like a real thesis if I'm going to invest in something and I, and to invest in things that I have some understanding of. And I was just playing in the, in the altcoin casino at that point. Um, and, and so then, um, 2018, by the end of 2018, I was really completely out of, of, Bitcoin and crypto. I'd sold it all, not for any financial reason, but personal life transition stuff going on. And so I was out of the uh, Bitcoin and crypto market until 2020 when I uh, started uh, buying Bitcoin again. And uh, in the in the interim, though, I really refined my my thesis and and uh, uh, very much, obviously, as we've talked about before, committed to. Bitcoin, not in a toxic maximalist sense, but I guess in a hopefully non-toxic maximalist sense. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that's my uh, yeah. that's my story. Hey, that's and good. Myron, you mentioned reading the white paper, which not a lot of people have done. But when I was getting when I got pulled back into it, like I said, in, into crypto, uh, I did read the white paper. And what's interesting is, as I was reading it, I remembered that I had actually invested in a stock in the late 90s called Cybercash. I don't know if anybody knows about it, but, you know, at the time, the internet was taking off, of course, it was the late 90s. And I thought it was a great idea to be able to use electronic money and Cybercash IPO'd and I bought it. Um, And, uh, but on January the 1st of 2000, uh, they got hit by the Y2K bug, and there was <laughs> double spending or double recording of transactions oh, yeah. Yeah. that happened. Uh, and I don't remember all the details, but I remember the company went poof pretty <laughs> soon after that. So when I was reading the white paper and I read about the Byzantine generals problem, which, of course, without going into the boring details of that, it essentially addressed the double spending issue. And I was like... That's where I. That's when I really got the technology of blockchain. I was like, "Oh, this is the problem that, that's being solved." Um, so after that, I kind of got blockchain. I got Bitcoin. Uh, I started reading about Ethereum to see what it actually does. Um, you know, and then they're talking about smart contracts and programming crypto to do things. Uh, so I'm, you know, at that time I was really starting to put two and two together from the technology standpoint and understand what problems were being solved, you know, and that, you know, it's all about cutting out middlemen and some privacy and using software code to automate things, you know, that makes transactions more reliable and secure and, and all of that. Um, so, and that it provides financial benefits to people instead of institutions. Uh, so you know, after putting all of that together, it really started clicking for me. And, and I knew that there was really something happening here. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about all these responses, and I think they, they um, I'm kind of uh, a part of all of them, right? You, you have on one end, Scott talking about this idea of self-sovereignty. So what the technology provides, which is a, uh, you could call it, I mean, there's so many ways of people talking about 
what it actually means is a feature is it's its primary benefit as an emergent type of property. Uh, this idea that you could have a, a, a math-based monetary system that people can verify. Uh, then you have the, the investor mindset, which is that because of perhaps those properties and perhaps others may be more on the efficiency side, you have adoption of something that has been limited, right? So in the case of Bitcoin, 21 million tokens. Um, and then and then the other thing that I think is so interesting is that all of us, I think, have a story uh, of the FOMO, of, of the meme culture and the emotions of a high vol asset which actually has removed so much of the uh, difficulty of moving it, of selling it, of using it. Um, feeling enough, people say, well, you can't use it anywhere. It's like, yeah, but the first time I ever went from one exchange to another to trade on a token that was somewhere you know, somewhere else that I couldn't get on any other exchange, I did at midnight on a Saturday. And I thought, you know, these are not banking hours. It kind of dawned on me. And, you know, the first time I, I moved, you know, some sats to a hardware wallet and I realized this is my account. This is my bank account. I went, wow, this is amazing. But, you know, for me, my, my, my story was, I think, you know, uh, 2015 or so, someone was telling me to, to buy some Ripple. Um, and I, it wasn't I, I me. Don't know what, it wasn't don't you. <laughs> it wasn't you. Uh, so I was working, I was a consultant. I was working at, at banks um, on, the, on the commercial side. And so there wasn't really much talk about these new things. But, you know, everyone was looking at me saying, well, this is just, you know, there, there was a lot of pessimism. And I didn't understand it. I didn't spend a lot of time reading it. Definitely didn't read the white paper. And then around 2017, and I have no idea how I got to this book. I got this book. I'm looking at my shelf right now. Um, uh, it's a, yes, the, the business blockchain. No, it wasn't crypto assets. I, I got that later. It was called the business blockchain. And it was a lot of things that, Jeremy, you were talking about. I was just curious. I said, well, what, what is this? Why is this you know, interesting at all? And I read and I... I kind of had this wow moment and I can't remember exactly what it was like this could be absolutely powerful and it, and it, and I saw applications in the business world that I was operating in and then uh, I said okay well I'm going to I'm going to do it and I remember buying buying some I had a Coinbase account I had my phone I bought I bought some and this was you know mid early 2017 mid mid 2017 and uh, and then I sent a note to my to my wife and said, "Hey, we're part of the digital economy now, the new economy." Like I got so happy, I felt like I was part of this new club that no one else was in yet, right? There was, so again, going into this this notion of FOMO and like you know being part of the the new, and then everyone else, you know, they don't know it. And then I just be, I just went nuts. I was total, you know, I'm in these meetings talking about him. Everyone's just going, "This guy's gone off the deep end." And uh, I didn't get into ICOs. Um, but I did, you know, I, I, I learning about all these these alternative, um, you know, schemes at the time, all of these, um, uh, what I guess we call altcoins. Um, you know, I, I put a bunch of you know bets on them, and you know, funny enough, I think if the projects are still around, they've they've basically have flatlined in terms of price and adoption. There's there's nothing going on, and uh, it was a really good lesson uh, in the sense that. I could see where, you know, technology that is, um, you know, it, it made me explore more about how this area emerges and what are some of the characteristics of it. So when you've got something like uh, a white paper and you've got open source code that's being published out to, um, you know, different repositories where people can just download it, make slight modifications and then slap a, a marketing uh, name on it then all of a sudden you have the ability to get into the next big thing, right? And then you, you observe that behavior in a lot of people. In fact, even today, I have people asking me, well, have you heard about this token? What, what do you think about this one? And you know, going, going back to the point Myron made, um, you know, what is your investment thesis? And, and, I, and I almost feel like that question lands flat. It's like, what do you mean this is an investment thesis? I want to make money. Okay, I get that. Um, but you know, you have to realize that, m you know, much of this market is, is factored in on speculation. And then, uh, some of these are just entirely speculation. And then if you ask the people, do you know anything about the underlying technology and how that may be adopted and useful? You know, they, they don't, they don't go there. Um, so, but I, yeah, I read a lot of the white papers. I'm someone that enjoys doing that. That was a high curiosity for me. I got a book by Anthony, uh, or, uh, Anatopoulos, his name wrong on you know what is Bitcoin went into the technical details. Uh, even though I'm not a coder, Myron, Myron and I have talked about that, and I really see my lack of depth there. Um, 
but it was really good. And then of course the markets crash, you feel good and then you feel bad. I, I didn't, I didn't quite leave it. Um, in the same way, um, I, I was keeping a pulse on it, but I wasn't active in it. And then I saw everything was happening with, with, um, you know, uh, stable coins and different schemas coming out. Then I saw the rise of DeFi. Now we're seeing the rise of NFTs and it's just such a different space now. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, coming back to that, you know, I, I know, I know Myron, you've talked about your sort of your, your principles and you and I have talked to online offline as well. You know, when you see DeFi and you see NFTs, you see these new use cases emerge. They don't, I don't actually see a lot of blockchain solving use cases. I, that got me excited to get into it. Um, I guess, uh, but then I see these new ones emerge You're and you're talking about Bitcoin. Um, as kind of being the, the area where you're, you're focused. I know you've talked about this, but has anything changed as you see these new technologies emerge? Your thinking, your philosophy, your investment thesis? Has it just reinforced it? Um, I'm open to the possibility that these alternative cryptocurrencies you know, may have value. They may be filling you know, use cases that, that uh, add value and so forth. But I really have learned both from positive examples as well as negative, you know, like what I mentioned in 2017, playing in the altcoin casino and that didn't work out. I really, um, I really invest or, you know, allocate resources based on principles and, and long-term thesis. I know there are people who can use technical analysis or other things and, and they, you know, they have an edge in being able to use some sort of a technique like that. Uh, that's, that's not, that's not me. So, uh, I would say I am pretty conservative and, and really stick to what I think I understand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's possible that I'm wrong, but, you know, both because of uh, because I understand the technology of Bitcoin as well as having uh, studied monetary economics as a as a hobby, not a, not academically, but but I feel like I have a, a pretty good understanding of the various perspectives to look at Bitcoin and have confidence in it. Whereas, as we've talked about on prior episodes, I don't really feel that level of confidence in other cryptocurrencies, even though I'm not saying they're all scams and no one should buy them. People understand them. They've got a thesis. Great. Go for it. Yeah. Scott, what about you? I mean, you you mentioned this idea of this being more the sovereign technology in your mind. Have you gained more knowledge of the underlying technology that gives you confidence that it it can achieve that goal? I'm working on it. I read a short book that went into some high level explanation of how Bitcoin works, uh, but it didn't go into a lot of detail. So my next, my next foray, I think into the space is going to be learning more about how it works from a a more lower level uh, technical aspect. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, on like most things, I imagine that the, the security side is probably a little overhyped by the people who are really into it. But then also the vulnerabilities of it are probably a little overhyped by the opponents. So I'm trying to take it from a more rational, I guess, middle of the road, skeptical approach and say that it's probably good for a lot of things, but it may not be perfect. I look at it as like, remember the clubs, those things that you could put on your car steering wheels um, to keep (laughs) people from stealing them? and. Like they weren't foolproof because all you had to do is cut the steering wheel and take the club off. But you figure if you're a car thief walking through a parking lot and you see a car with a club on it and one without, you're going to go after the car without the club, right? Even though the club doesn't stop it, it's enough of a deterrent. So that's what I'm looking at for blockchain and these cryptocurrencies and this idea of personal sovereignty mm-hmm. is that it's going to make things just difficult enough that at least in the beginning, the the people who want to take away my personal sovereignty will just go somewhere else. They'll go for the lower hanging fruit. Um, And then what I'm hoping is that later on, as the technologies evolve, um, we'll always be able to stay one step ahead. I I think there's a lot of the hacker mentality. So I spent some time doing cybersecurity and 
the thought there was that the, the hackers were always one step ahead of the um, security experts, it's meaning mm-hmm. the security ex- experts were always reactive. The hackers would figure out the exploit, then the security experts would come in and fix it. And that's the way I think the blockchain is. And I think there's a lot of that hacker mentality, that cypherpunk crypto mentality mm-hmm. in this space. So I'm hoping that they're just going to always be one step ahead. So the culture being a powerful driving right. force to uh, achieving what this, this concept of self-sovereignty. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I think Bitcoin's here to stay. Just looking at the number of states in the U.S. that are moving to make it legal tender. I saw a headline this morning that Ukraine has passed a bill that's going to make it legal. Um, Russia has recently set up some sort of a – don't quote me on this. I don't have it exactly right, but they've set up some sort of a business structure, legal structure where Bitcoin miners can operate in certain areas of the country. Um, so I, th- I think it's here to stay. And I think people are starting to realize that getting rid of it is not going to happen, which is, you know, it's very encouraging to me, but my questions still are, you know, how, how private is it really? And if the, from my understanding is, you know, like I've heard people say like the FBI, the CIA, all that, right. They run nodes, they know all the transactions that are going through them so that if they really wanted to, right, they could get in there and find something. Or if they, I guess if they ever get to the point where they can break the cryptography around it, right? All those yeah. transactions are going to become wide open. So we have to depend on the fact that we're always going to be able to stay one step ahead. Yeah. So well, there's, sorry, go on. No, I'm done. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I, I know um, there's, there's discussions of proposals specific to Bitcoin that could make it quantum resistant in theory. Um, so there's, there's discussions on that. And then there's other cryptos, uh, that in theory have already been designed with that at, a, at the, pro, at the protocol layer. Um, I, I'm not sure how like well Mon- those are adapted. Monero, right. Isn't Monero no, supposed to be? Yeah. So no, they're using, I think a, a slightly, so there's the privacy coins or tokens like Monero's one Zcash is another that use different schemas to, I think, obfuscate, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I guess I see that as different than uh, being uh, uh, resistance or resistant to uh, quantum hacking, which as a concept, I use that term as if I understand exactly how that would work. My, 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 my blunt thinking is that uh, because it has three states rather than two instead of ones and zeros, it's got a middle state. It just is able to operate and, and do computing at such a high level that it just runs all the permutations to, to brute force it. That's my understanding. Right. Um, but for, 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 for all those who are listening here who <laughs> may go, well, that's not quite right. Yeah, you're right. I, I didn't get it quite right, but that's, that's my understanding. But, but Jeremy, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you the same question, sort of, you know, in terms of your understanding of the technology, you, you got out of it, you came back in. I know that you're um, actively exploring um, and thinking about the other, the other technologies, so not specific to Bitcoin, but looking at ones that are perhaps in maybe the DeFi space, maybe the NFT space. What's the level of comfort you have with these new protocols, those networks, how they're using the technology? How are you coming uh, I, I get to, more, to that? Yeah, I definitely look more uh, at the altcoins than I do Bitcoin uh, currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, you know, for me, I have I've really learned to to love the all of the innovative thinkers that that are out there that are trying to drive value to people instead of just the institutions. So it's not just about self-sovereignty. It's about actually driving value to people, uh, which I th- think is, is what's being done through DeFi, through gaming. There's, you know, play to earn is kind of the new thing in gaming. Uh, NFTs are about driving value to individuals instead of institutions and corporations. So uh, so that's what really attracts me to it is just there's so much innovative thinking going on that um, that's global. And I think that's one of the the underappreciated aspects of crypto is that it's this global community driven uh, environment ecosystem that uh, that I think has been attracting a lot of real, you know, big innovative thinkers. And, you know, there's there's a lot of trial and error going on for sure, mm-hmm. um, you know, in DeFi, it it hasn't been perfect. It's you know had issues with you know with pumps and dumps and money moving in one ecosystem because people are being paid ten thousand percent APR, <laughs> and when they stop doing that, it just moves to another ecosystem, yeah. and you know, and people will laugh at that and say, "See, it doesn't work." 
but in but what I see is that people are they're trying to figure this out and there's going to mm-hmm. be false steps that happen but it's a learning process and then they move to defi 2.0 and then they'll move to 3.0 but it all has the same kind of overarching goal of let's bring value to the people and cut out the middlemen and let individuals have opportunities to take advantage of these uh, financial incentives yeah. instead of just banks and institutions being the ones who, who are able to capitalize on it. Yeah. So it, it's really about the, you're, you're seeing, I guess, in real time services being offered that can take away the centralized or compete effectively potentially with the centralized parties that are doing it today in traditional areas. So that, that more than the underlying technology, uh, perhaps that you're seeing more about just the, the absolute, the, the output of it or the product of it. Is, is that a good summary? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and if you look at it, like DeFi, you know, that's really addressing like banking. But if you look at something like gaming as an example, and how is that, how's the play to earn the NFTs driving value to gaming? Uh, you know, I would say if you take Fortnite as an example, and Fortnite, Epic Games is making a lot of money by selling people the the things that they're wearing mm-hmm. inside the games, right. the the weapons that they use inside the games. Epic Games is the one earning off of that. But once you start bringing in blockchain games and NFTs, you now have individuals that are able to create these things and own them themselves and sell them if they want to, and royalties go to the creators, mm-hmm. um, not, you know, and, and go to the individuals who, you know, have learned to capitalize and sell for a profit, you know, these NFTs, or they've learned how to play a game and now they can, they're, they're incentivized to play the game by getting paid for it. Right. So it's, you know, whether it's DeFi, whether it's gaming, I just see the tech, and, but it's all about the underlying blockchain technology that's enabling this. Right. Uh, and and it's and it's enabling it to be a global, uh, community-driven, you know, ecosystem. Makes sense. What you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about this from a, from an audience perspective. Maybe people that haven't got into this space before. How would you talk to them about? The, the mental models or decisioning that they could consider? Because, you know, Myron started off with, <laughs> with a good point of saying, gosh, isn't this a corny question? When did you get into this? At some point, wouldn't it be great if that's a, that's a dumb question to ask because it's just all around us? And, and I completely agree. I think uh, we're not there yet, though, um, because uh, the example this morning, I had some physical therapy done and uh, the physical therapist who does a great job um, was asking about you know, what, what am I working on? I told her about this podcast coming up and she was like, Oh, cryptocurrencies. And of course she goes down all the things that are top of mind when she thinks about that, which was, Oh, I remember that hack that happened. That was you know very, but they kind of got their money back. And then, Oh, what about those people that got scammed in Europe? So everything in her mind is, is very negative. Uh, it would be the exact opposite of justifying an investment or, or, or sort of an alignment to the, the individual, the self-sovereign idea. And um, so I, I guess I'm thinking like, what are the decision models or mental models that you would suggest someone to think about? And uh, maybe, you know, Myron, I'll start with you since you brought this idea of uh, hopefully getting past the, uh, when, when, do, you know, when do we get into it kind of question. Yeah. Well, um, you know, when you think of mental models, I guess there are, um, this may not really be a model, but at least some principles that might might uh, uh, form a mental model if we if we all uh, batted around here. But you know, I um, I was riding in a taxi in Las Vegas one time, and I was chatting with the taxi driver and ask him kind of you know how long have you lived in Las Vegas? You know, just just chatting. And his story was that uh, twelve years prior he had gone to Vegas for a weekend for a bachelor party. And he won a ridiculous amount of money in the casino, like uh, 150000 or some, you know, a, yeah. he won a lot of money. And he was convinced that he was a genius. He moved to Vegas to become a professional gambler and over the next couple of years lost all that money and has been living in Vegas, hating it, driving a taxi <laughs> for 10 years. 
That is a um, really depressing story. <laughs> that is a really depressing story. And I tell it just to, as a cautionary tale of don't let accidental success convince you that you or someone else is an investment genius. There are plenty of people who've made a lot of money in cryptocurrency by being in the right place at the right time. Doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Does not mean you should follow their advice. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll name a, I'll name a big name. Elon Musk does not understand cryptocurrencies. I know that's heresy Ooh. to say that I know more than Elon Musk about something. Elon Musk is not the person you want to listen to about cryptocurrencies. Um, Elon, I know if you're listening to this, uh, you're welcome at any time to come back and rebut Myron. Um, we, we'd love to have you on. I'm just putting the invitation out there. I, I know you, you know it's hard for us to schedule guests, but we'd be happy to make a slot for you. <laughs> there you so, go. There so you go. You, you mean to say doing something once doesn't make you an expert? <laughs> exactly. You, you have to and actually so, formulate a model and actually repeat the process multiple times before you can be considered an expert. That's, and I call him out because I know people who bought Dogecoin because Elon talked about Dogecoin. They had no idea why they were buying Dogecoin and um, they lost money or I think maybe some of them made some money, but not what they were expecting to make, but, but more than anything, lost money, right? So I really think that anyone who is considering getting into cryptocurrency, uh, no surprise here, but I think that Bitcoin is the safe place to start but again, don't just buy Bitcoin because you heard about it. Learn something about it, but also, uh, you know, do it in a smart way. Start at very modest amounts, dollar cost averaging in. Understand that the price is going to go up. It's going to go down. So you don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to put your entire nest egg in all at once and find out that it was the, the wrong time. Although I will say, if you look historically over the life of Bitcoin, uh, there's never been a bad time to buy Bitcoin, only temporarily less good times. And uh, so I encourage folks to start there. But I also think that uh, looking around at the other the other projects, the other opportunities uh, is also a good thing. But but have a thesis, understand what your edge is, be humble and uh, and, you know, don't let accidental success convince you of genius. Can you just quickly explain dollar cost averaging for the folks out there who don't know what that is? Oh, yeah, I can try. So uh, it means buying a fixed amount on a regular basis so that when the price is as the price fluctuates, when the price is low, if you're buying if you're buying $100 every month, let's say. Well, when the price is low, then you're buying a larger number of whatever you're buying, Bitcoin in, in the case I'm talking about. And then when the price goes up, uh, you're, you're buying a smaller amount at a higher price. But over time, dollar cost averaging is uh, a good low risk, higher return way to invest as opposed to trying to time the market. Right. And so you're basically riding that curve upwards and not trying to buy the dips and sell the highs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and for anyone listening, I mean that that's a strategy that could be applied to any high volatility asset class or higher, you know, any, anything that, that's going to change over time. As long as you believe your thesis is that it will be adopted over time and price will go in that in that direction, uh, your uh, that that strategy works really really well. And that, that's that's also one that I've suggested to many people uh, who are interested in dipping their toes. And two things about that, and then Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the the number of people that have followed that advice is almost zero, and um, then those same people are asking me about these alternative tokens that I, I don't recommend. And um, what's what's interesting about that is going to the meta level of understanding what is so different and interesting about how this technology is being promulgated out to the masses and how uh, it has this meme quality to it that is. You know, we talk about it in so many different ways. Like this, that we talk about as money and value. We talk about as currency. We talk about as protocols. It has all these different names for it. And um, there's something I think very unique about it as a meme. Every, I've I've read a lot of papers talking about memes and how they how they they move through society differently. And um, 
but it, it to me it's it's so fascinating to watch that um, because there's actually good good arguments for Dogecoin. Um, I've heard some of them. I, I don't really follow them, and I, I don't own any Doge, and I have no intention of buying any. Um, I, but I could see where someone could make some some arguments. Um, but you know, if anybody ever asked me, I'm saying no. I I I wouldn't do that, even though you you maybe has you know. Maybe there's something you could really make a lot of money off of it, or maybe maybe beyond that, you actually think it's more decentralized. Scott, I, th- I think you're 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 saying you have something you want to add to to my point, right? We're talking about Doge, uh, Dogecoin, and I think Myron brought up something great here. Is Elon Musk? I don't know enough about crypto to say whether Elon Musk knows what he's talking about or not. I'm gonna gonna defer to Myron on that one, but that's an example of authority without credibility. We see Elon Musk with the authority to make these calls, but what credibility does he really have? And it's easy when you get into this market and you don't under, not only don't you understand the underlying technology and how the markets work, you don't really know much about the people you're listening to possibly and what their incentives are. So check into these folks and find out what type of credibility do they have? Are they someone I'm thinking of like a Peter Schiff who just keeps saying that everything's going to crash. Well, I mean, we know that we have a, we have a business cycle where things go up and down. So if you just keep saying everything's going to crash, eventually you're going to be right. But how much credibility do you really have? So, um, and I'm thinking like, I'm just getting into this and I've been hearing something about like plan B or something where the guy's just been making some outrageous predictions and people are really starting to question where this is all coming from. Um, But I guess he's been right in the past if I'm, if I'm understanding the story correctly, but well, and actually, that that that's another type of meme that that everyone needs to be aware of. There's price predictions in this space. It's just it's you know you could say that well that price predictions are part of every single financial asset and model. True, but they're amplified to such a high level here, and people are so focused on the price they're not asking themselves what how does their thinking evolve to adoption? What is the adoption path that would necessitate or, or generate a price like that? Right. So in the case of Plan B. Um, you know, he's, he's using different kinds of models to forecast numbers and, uh, it's, it's based on what I, it's called a stock to flow model, which is taken from how gold and other precious metals are evaluated. Um, and it really comes down to the fact that their supplies are relatively limited in the case of Bitcoin. It's, it's exactly known. And then that you're just layering on layers of demand, assuming certain projections, put all that aside. And I'm no expert on his model. That's a summary of what I understand it to be. It's another type of meme concept, right? Where people are getting excited about this idea. I buy, I buy low. It goes very high, very quickly. But they're not asking themselves, what are the other? What's the other infrastructure? And I don't just mean like electronic infrastructure, adoption rates for people, the the tools and tech that they need to be to make this work. I mean, even as we're having this conversation, what's coming to mind is, on one hand, we want this to be entirely ubiquitous. Yet at the same time, we're telling people they have to learn about it, right? You have to learn about that money you're going to use. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say it any other way, but it's a contradiction, right? Especially when we think about user experience and how people adopt other types of technologies. Um, if, you know, if someone in, in 2009 or 2005 had said, you know, in order for you to understand Twitter, you're going to have to understand exactly their tech stack before you can start using it. Never happens. Never takes off. I don't care how cute that bird is. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, but Jeremy, I want to come back to you. Um, you know, someone who's looking at more of the other assets, what do you recommend to people? How do you talk to them if someone's saying, hey, I'm, I'm kind of curious, but it's it's overwhelming. Do you, do you have recommendations that you make, models, decisions, et cetera? Yeah. And, and earlier you asked me if I, you know, what middle models I was using in 2017 and I didn't have any. Um, but I have a lot of lessons learned since then. And I do have models that I use now. And, I, and it's a lot. So, I'll start going into it, but cut me off if I'm going on for if it's been two hours and I'm still right. talking because I've learned use- a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, just just put this uh, this recording at 1.5 and you can get through the next three hours. <laughs> no, I won't. It. I won't talk for that long. But it, I do feel like that I have that I have so many lessons learned, and um, you know, I've I have FOMO'd a lot and. I've lost over 50% of my portfolio a few times, um, but I do have a framework in place that, I've, that I have been using and I've been improving upon you know, over the past year or so. Uh, and and I'll, 
I'll give a quick overview of this framework that I'm using. Uh, I think Myron and I will probably go into maybe more depth uh, on our mental models uh, podcast here in the near future. But it's based on the six-stage framework that we introduced in our season one. And I made some enhancements to it and kind of calibrated it to to use for investing in general, but specifically uh, investing in crypto. Um, and I think, uh, you know, th- the way that I think about each one of these stages is from a first-person point of view, because I kind of want to make it feel like it's it's active, that I'm doing it. So what I've named these six stages, uh, you know, is to start off by being the an idea generator. And some of this ties back to like you're talking about you need a thesis and all of that. So that plays a big part in this. But start off by being an idea generator and then an opportunity assessor, an opportunity prioritizer, a portfolio manager, an opportunity validator, and a results measurer. And those are kind of the six stages that you go through. And there's iterative parts, there's feedback loops in there, but those are kind of the the six stages. And each stage has a guiding principle, activities, and outputs. And, um, you know, I use this framework uh, really to, for a few things. One, to focus my efforts, to control my emotions, and to actually be and act like an investment portfolio manager instead of just throwing darts and gambling. So, you know, I've put this, this whole framework together and, and I kind of use it to guide my thinking as I'm doing, going through, you know, various research and buying and, and selling. And, um, you know, I think if, if I were to actually kind of talk tie that into lessons that I've learned and like why I built this framework, um, you know, I think, well, first let me clarify the type of investor that I am, because you guys, you, you talked about self-sovereignty, um, and dollar cost averaging and, um, you know, I would say that you know self sovereignty and hedging against inflation are v- very important things, but they're not really my primary motive as I'm working through my investment you know process. You know, I actually look at crypto the same way that you might look at tech stocks. So, you know, what are some lessons learned uh, that I've had over the past few years that really led me to build you know so- something more structured that I can use? Um, you know, because I've gotten wrecked a lot of times and I've learned a lot of lessons, but, you know, I would say, you know, when you're first starting out and you're looking at alt altcoins, uh, you're tempted to just buy all over the place. You know, whatever, basically whatever people are talking about, games, oracles, storage providers, DeFi, you're tempted to just buy uh, whatever people are talking about. So the first lesson is don't buy what the YouTube influencers are shilling. <laughs> so so I, I've listened to a lot of them. And the reason is because, it, and it's tempting to listen to them because when you're trying to learn, you're just trying to grab information from anywhere. And they're talking about things and they sound so authentic and expert-like. They, yeah, they, they sound very confident in what they know. They sound very confident in what they have in their own bags. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, but you know, so that's the first lesson. It's okay to listen to them, but don't just buy what they're shilling. You can learn a little bit from listening to them, uh, but you don't have to buy it. Yeah. yeah. The second lesson, which ties back to what you guys were talking about, which is to find a theme or a couple of themes that that you can focus on, because there are a lot of opportunities out there, and it's really just not possible to keep up with everything. And you can reduce your risk by narrowing your focus. And with a narrow focus, you're able to have a deeper understanding of opportunities, which allows you to build conviction and buy those opportunities. So find a theme to narrow your focus and build confidence so that you can build conviction. Uh, and, th- and that's really the lesson, you know, yeah. because there are so many times where I was watching something, a token, and I would watch it triple and then quadruple in price before I was like, I guess I sh- better go ahead and buy this. And then it drops because I waited until I felt like I had enough information before having the conviction to buy it. But Jeff Bezos, I remember what he had said. Jeff Bezos famously uh, said something a long time ago that most decisions should probably be made 
with somewhere around 70% of the information you wish you had. Because if you wait longer than that, you've probably missed the biggest part of an opportunity. Mm. So um, I think if I, give, uh, if I give some examples or an example of how I have focused on specific themes, my primary focus right now is on uh, alternative layer ones and layer twos and gaming with a, and a secondary focus on DeFi. And DeFi, for example, uh, in itself is really broad. So even that needs to be broken down. So specifically uh, related to DeFi, you know, I one do some staking for passive income, and then I my narrowed focus even on that is to look for yield aggregator protocols and dexes on different blockchains to catch rotations into those blockchain ecosystems. Which I know sounds complex, but uh, a specific example would be on Ethereum. For example, the TVL, the total value locked, was growing. If so, you I use DeFi Llama is the website that, that people mm-hmm. use to watch to look for total value locked uh, in protocols, and I could see that it was growing in convex finance. So I looked there and invested there. Then Solana became hot, and Sunny, the Sunny protocol, is the yield aggregator there, and mm-hmm. the Dex on Solana is is called Radium. And then Avalanche started trim, uh, trending, the Avalanche blockchain. So I looked at what the hot decks and yield aggregator was there, which is Trader Joe and Yield Yak. So I invest in those. And that process just becomes a narrowly focused game plan. And I've done the same thing with gaming. Gaming can be broken down to gaming infrastructure, streaming, play to earn, gaming NFTs. But you find speci- you, it, the more you can narrow your focus the more deeper you can dive into it and understand the trends that are occurring. So the, the quicker you can actually build conviction in something mm. because you understand it better. And the, the, the earlier you can be in investing in something. All right. I, so first of all, this is none of this is financial advice and Definitely. any of the teams that he gave, he's not saying you should go out there and buy them. He's simply using them as references for how hey, you can understand where you could be looking and potentially finding projects of interest for you that you could follow without ever owning anything. <laughs> yeah, it's about it's it's demonstrating how to narrow your focus. Yeah, no, I, I I like that. Um, so so sorry, yeah, Scott, Jeremy, do you recommend developing a model and just fake investing? I don't know what you call it. Um, practice practicing paper yeah. trading. Paper trading. Yeah. Do you recommend doing that? Or, yeah, I mean, of course, I recommend it. Have I ever really done it? No. <laughs> uh, mi- minimally. Yeah. Uh, just, because I because you don't really get the the full effect of the emotions when you're paper trading. I think it it is good to do, and yes, I recommend it because it can help you build some some habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can help you build a practice to follow. Um, but you're not going to get the full effect of the emotions until you really st- start putting your money at stake, which which means just starting smaller is what that would mean. Right, right. Which yeah. which actually leads to my third lesson, which is money management. Yeah. Mo- having having a money management strategy, because you know, again, for some people that could just be dollar cost averaging, uh, but for other people like me, uh, you know, I've learned to use a, a few things. So I have a few models here, but I've learned to use three levels of risk, high, medium, and low, and have three time frames: high, medium, and short. Uh, and for sure, most definitely set stops and take profits. And of course, you know, the, so the question that always comes up with, you know, what price should I set my stops at? And when should I take profits? Because nobody ever gets that right. <laughs> Yeah, because right. it sounds simple in theory, but how do you get it right? Uh, and and you should really develop your own principles. I I personally have my own guiding principles um, for those. But but basically, if you can limit your losses to like twenty percent and cash in your winners at fifty or a hundred percent, you're probably making money. So I'll set you know stops because most people don't set stops. <laughs> <laughs> they buy something and they write it down ninety yeah. percent. Um, so I, that's a, that's a money management just habit to get right. into is you know to to de- to definitely set stops, take profits, um, 
So, so to kind of summarize this money management strategy, you know, it's really to use multiple risk levels across multiple time frames, set stops, take profits, and lastly, you know, to leave at least fifteen percent in cash ready to buy the panic dips. Hmm. Because if you just do these basic things, you're really ahead of ninety percent of the other people out there right. that are buying altcoins. Yeah, and there, and, and there. You know, I feel like that's an area that you've seen explode that is a lot of trading too, right? There's a lot more active uh, entering and exiting of positions. Not that it doesn't happen on Bitcoin, but it's uh, in some ways it, there's just, there's, and there's reasons for that. Some of it is just trapped liquidity where you can get these massive spikes in vol, uh, which allows you to get a lot of those gains. Also has the downside of it, but um, there, there's there's some definitely some some benefits for people that want to be active. I will say this. Um, I, I love the the assessment, the risk side of it. I, I don't know anybody in real life that I've met that's that's traded successfully. Maybe maybe you're the first, Jeremy. Um, I've met a lot of people on Twitter who are anonymous uh, who have traded amazingly successfully. Uh, so I, I don't know what that model tells me if, if my real life interactions are better. But I will say this. If you're coming into this and you're thinking, I'm gonna. Uh, I see, I hear about these young people making these amazing trades, making a lot of money, and you've never done any trading at all. Just stop for a second, ask yourself, why is it you think you're going to be better here than uh, than somewhere else? Um, there's there's a lot of reasons you could argue. Things like there's algo trading, which has absolutely devoured most of the traditional markets. Um, this is an area where traditional financiers haven't spent a, a, a tremendous lot of time. Although there's a lot of hedge funds doing a lot of work here. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this comes back in my mind and lesson learned is just about managing emotions that, um, I think if you start with a really smart framework, like what Jeremy's laid out there, which is about how you develop a thesis, um, then you then have to layer on other elements because it is such a high volatility, um, asset class. So, uh, that's something you want to think about, which to me is, is, you know, DCA can be part of that. Um, I think having a horizon, um, of saying, you know, uh, it's going to be five years, 10 years kind of locked in that I'm not going to worry about it. Could also be something where you're asking yourself, okay, I know that this could drop 80%, 90% in a period of time. Is that going to bother me? Well, then what's the maximum amount that I'm willing to put in if it dropped that much? And how much would I be comfortable? Uh, and, and basic questions. So I think that's something I've learned um, going through this is that, you know, emotional management is really big. But Myron, I, I know you've got some some time constraints, about ten minutes, but um, you know, you, you shared some about your experience. What do you think is the biggest lesson learned, and what what are those things that you would love to tell the, to the next person, um, maybe that you haven't shared yet, that you know they should they should know and and be able to adopt before perhaps before they get in, or maybe if they're in and they're they're still learning. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I liked a lot of. Uh Jeremy's principles there. I think those were those are really good things to keep in mind. Uh, I'll I'll take it back to something a little simpler, which is um, you know if you put yourself in a mindset that uh, again I'm going to focus on Bitcoin, but you could equally say the same for for other other cryptocurrencies potentially. But you know I look at this as Bitcoin five to ten years from now. Uh, could be, in my mind, equally likely to be $200,000 per Bitcoin or $20,000 per Bitcoin or even less, right? And so all of my uh, activity in this space, I keep that in mind. So my position size is such that if Bitcoin goes to $200,000, I'll be really happy. And if it goes to zero, I'll survive. I won't be broke. Uh, and, and so I think anyone coming in, you know, when we talk about having a thesis, you know, even just starting out with a, a basic thesis that says what sort of portfolio uh, allocation, what what position size would I be comfortable with uh, not losing sleep at night, wondering what's happening to the price of Bitcoin, uh, where it would have a significant impact if it does go up in price, but I would be okay if it doesn't. And I, I think that is one of the mistakes that I've seen people make where they've they've gone in too big. You know, it's the FOMO, uh, the greed, fear and greed, right? And so just going in too big and uh, then getting hurt by it. And so that's probably the one thing as we talk about all this that I would want to make sure folks go away with that 
sense of caution. I I think that's fantastic. And um, I, I completely agree. Think about your sizing. Think about what you're comfortable with. And, and do that. You can you can start that earlier than you think, right? Do, do not wait until that emotional moment happens because of a correction in the market. And now you're having to ask that question. So Scott, I guess as a... Um, as a uh, self-sovereign kind of focused and more of a, a user perhaps and thinking more of as a user versus a, an investor, what about you lessons learned? What, what do you think you'd share with someone with that mindset? Well, I think what I learned on this podcast is that Twitter anonymity is a precondition to crypto trading <laughs> success. So I think I'll just start up a just new go Twitter. anonymous and it goes yeah. up a hundred percent. Yeah. I'm just going to start a new Twitter account and be anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm set. Um, now, from my perspective, it's about knowledge. I want to know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm doing some very basic dollar cost averaging right now, and it, I mean, not even a lot of money, um, because I want to understand better the direction that it's going. And um, a big thing for me, I guess, coming from a legal background, is all of, is the regulatory framework. Exactly, how are the governments going to try to constrain this, and what's that going to do to its future? So, I'm. You know, on the one side, I touched on this earlier, right? You got the FOMO, all the people who are hyping it up, telling you, you got to get in now, you got to get in now. Then on the other side, you've got the FUD, you know, the people who are telling you that it's dangerous, don't don't go near it, don't touch it, it's going to destroy the world. Um, I think you got to, you have to be able to take that middle, that middle of the road approach, right? Mm-hmm. Take what's, take what's legitimate from each side and try to use it, but try to filter out all of the, the panic, but all of the hype, and develop a rational, you guys mentioned it, non-emotional approach to what you're doing. And I know that's hard, but um, I think that's what you have to do. And was it, I can't remember, was it Warren Buffett when he talks about value investing? He talks about invest in what you know. Um, that may not have been Warren Buffett. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm but, pretty sure it's his. At least it's one of his and Munger's principles. Right. So, and the idea about it is if you don't know anything about tech, don't go investing in the tech stocks. You know, if you don't know anything about trucking, don't invest in trucking stocks. Um, so the whole point is to take the time to learn the industry. And where you make your gains is like the theory behind insider trading, right? Is by the time you or me or Myron or Jeremy, by the time we hear about a stock or a coin, chances are that thing's already close to the top, right? All of the mm-hmm. information and all of the value has been squeezed out of it already, and this is why you don't listen to the guys on YouTube, because by the time you're getting that information, right, that a million other people have probably already heard it. Um, yeah. You know, so point. but the idea behind insider trading is that you can get in before information becomes public and you get all of that value that that information is going to bring from the increase in price in the asset. So if you don't have insider information and I don't recommend insider trading because it's illegal, but if you're able to look at an industry and see where it's going from where it is now, then you have a better chance, I think, of capturing that value because Bitcoin may be down now, but if you know that something's coming and you feel like it's just going to really get big and you buy in and you have the the wherewithal and the fortitude to just hold on, then when that big thing hits, it's going to pay off for you. And that's where- I think an important point there is is finding trusted sources. It's not easy- You know, you want to be informed so that you can see these things happening, but it's not easy to find trusted sources. I have, you know, several people that I follow that, you know, over the period of several months, I've learned to use them as trusted sources. But I think that's one of the hardest things is, you know, you want to get out in front of things. You want to do your own research, but it's uh, it's hard to find those those sources. Yeah. How do you disentangle the signal and noise? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I know what, what I'm saying is a lot easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, but I think once you do find those sources, though, yeah, stay with them. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the point. Yeah. Um, guys, I know we're at about time. Uh, Myron, I'm going to start with you. Anything? Any last thoughts you'd want to leave from your experience? Uh, well, I think we've we've pretty much covered it all. Uh, I don't think I have anything else to add. Okay. What about you, Jeremy? You gave us a really great framework for the listeners. And I know you guys are going to explore that further, but is there anything else that maybe you wanted to share you hadn't yet? No, I, th- I think the, the, for me, the mindset that I would like for people to be in is uh, is to recognize, to, to understand the history of innovation. Uh, you know, cars, telephones, computers, internet, money. You know, there's a lot of doubters in the beginning uh, of, of innovation cycles. And there's some failure, there's issues. Um, 
but learn to appreciate the journey of innovation and recognize that that's what we're going through right now. Yeah. Um, don't just discount it. Just recognize that we're, we're, we're in a legitimate journey of innovation. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Scott? Right. And being on the early end of the curve, there's going to be a lot of volatility. But <laughs> yeah. as this matures, I think the volatility will get pushed out of the market. Um, you know, for me, I just want to say coming soon, the mentally unscripted six-step model to investing in crypto <laughs> that has any similarities to what Jeremy said on this podcast <laughs> is purely coincidental. No, just kidding. We're not going to do that. So. No, I think yeah, it was a good yeah. conversation. Um, yeah. A lot of good models here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think um, just to summarize here, I think uh, it's a space that has a lot of volatility, a lot of unknowns because it's on the edge of, of innovation. Because of that, the more uh, learned you are in terms of understanding the fundamentals and what's evolving and what could drive adoption, because ultimately adoption is what really is sustainable from a value perspective, understanding those aspects of it and then having uh, being able to build a thesis and managing your emotions, your risk, thinking about it across all that, which is a lot of the lessons I think we've all learned from various aspects of our, of our time here. That's what you need to do. Um, and I think that goes for anybody who's been in here a long time and someone who's just getting started. So hopefully you enjoy this um, crossover. Uh, you, you got something out of thinking about how you can change your behavior and what you can do to, to effectively manage your risk and think about how, being a, a great participant because it is such an amazing space that we all love. As you notice, all four of us are in it. We're just in it in slightly different ways and thinking about it maybe a little bit differently. So appreciate it. You can go find these guys up at uh, mentalsupermodels.com. You can find us at mentalinscripted.com and wherever we are, wherever else we hang our hats uh, on social media. So go check us out. Leave some comments. Let us know what you think. And if you're doing other things to, uh, to manage your time in, in crypto, we'd love to hear about it. But uh, until next time, take care. Be well.